What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. These are big movies, think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f are the Knutsons? We like movies! Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with my good friend Matthew Knutson, and this is your favorite every quarter or so movie podcast. Matt, I mean, I'm excited to be here. This is We Like Movies. We, we've been gone a little while, so we might be a little rusty. Do you think this is our longest hiatus? We ever Have we ever taken three months off before? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I, I need to wish you a happy belated 10-year anniversary. Thank you. We started this podcast in October of 2010. Okay. So we hit 300 episodes last year, but we hit 10 years this year. And I feel like that was it was time. It was a good time for a hiatus. We both had a lot going on in our lives. And I think we, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Personally, I was feeling a little bit fatigued and kind of overwhelmed by all the dominoes that I started to see fall this summer because of all the various things that were happening around the world. And it wasn't that I fell out of love with movies. It was just that movies just weren't the same this year. And uh, and I, I was kind of ready for just to just kind of take a breath, take a step back and kind of um, survey the landscape a little bit for yeah. a couple months. I think it was healthy for us to do so. Yeah, I found myself just not not wanting to watch anything. You know, I think it was subconscious at the beginning. Eventually, I think you start to realize like, you know, we, we you get into this pattern every year and September comes around or the summer comes around, you got all the blockbusters. September, October, November comes around, and that's my favorite time of year for movies. It's cold yeah. here, it's dark here, and it's the best thing to do. You make a night out of going to whatever movie you're excited to see, whatever award-worthy type of film is finally out at, at SIF or, or, or wherever, and uh, not having that has been just a bummer. And this the state of things, I mean, the state of the world in general, but also what that means for movies, can't help but bum you out, you know? And the looming election anxiety, you know, there was just, there's just a lot of things going on this fall. And ultimately, I, I don't, I certainly wouldn't, don't want to put any of this at Christopher Nolan's feet. He, it's, it's not his fault, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. But the the tenant, just the, the, the tease of tenant <laughs> finally just, it just wrung me out, you know, like it, yeah. it got to the point, like we were, we were doing the, we were doing the Nolan series all summer long, which I was just, you know, which was so wonderful for me and, and was so exciting. And it was just something I've been looking forward to for a long time and and when the tenant pushes kept happening i just I, I just got sort of like emotionally fatigued and i ended up finally seeing it we will talk about it hopefully in the next couple weeks when you get a chance to see it i did rent a car and i drove down to san diego because that was the closest theater i don't have a car at the moment so i had to rent a zip car drove down to san diego 100 miles put my mask on sat in the theater a little scary it was it was pretty pretty packed in there liked it can't wait to talk about it. But that's it. That's the only thing. That's the only thing I've seen in a theater, you know, since March. I think. I think. I think. Onward was the last movie I saw in the theater back in March. So Tenet, Tenet is the only other thing. And Tenet is now, I think, the third highest-grossing film of 2020, which is crazy <laughs> to think about. And it only. It, it only did. It's only done 350 million. Does that sound right? Here, I'm looking up right now. Yeah, 350, 360 million worldwide. That it, it will not break even. The Warner Brothers. It looks like the Tenet experiment is technically a failure, which is why a lot of of uh, decisions have been made by Warner Brothers and various other companies over the course of the last week, which we can get into eventually. 
But for all intents and purposes, the Tenet experiment uh, did not work out the way they'd hoped it would. Well, I'm excited to watch Tenet at home so I could put closed captionings on. Oh boy, lots, lots of talk, lots of things to talk about in terms of Mr. Nolan's sound mix. Yeah, I liked it very much, but I completely understand why it's rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and I'm very excited to see to to hear what you say about it. But what a strange situation to be in, where we have a new Christopher Nolan movie, and I can't talk to anybody about it. Yeah, you're one of the few. I mean, do you know anyone else who's seen it? Not like in my real life, you know. Yeah. Like I've listened to plenty of podcasts and stuff of people who got screeners of it or went to drive-ins or are living in different countries, you know. But no, nobody in my in my world has really seen it. We, we rolled the dice on him over the summer. I always knew it was going to be risky. It didn't work. It didn't end up working out. But we'll we'll finish it off next late, later this month, and I think it'll be good. And we've had a lot of time to ruminate on him, and we'll do our rankings and all that fun stuff. It's going to be a nice, uh, fun next six weeks or so when we get all these uh, awards movies that are finally going to come to streaming. Uh, starting today, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Mank after we. Uh, you know, go through just the, the lay of the land here. Post-election, getting into the dead of winter here. A little less anxiety. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Vaccines are coming. I found myself last night sitting down, putting the phone away, and feeling good about a full viewing of Mank. And it was great. And now, now I'm back in it, Matt. Mank has brought me back into the fold. What a great way to like get back into movies by watching a love letter to movies, right? Yeah. As much of a salty cold stick in the mud as David Fincher can oftentimes be deep 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 down he's he's a warm fuzzy cinephile you know like yeah. I mean the guy loves movies and and clearly has an affection for Hollywood history and so it's cool that he finally got a chance to really make a true love letter period piece and uh, and also got to direct his father's final script there's something kind of heartwarming about that as well right oh uh, for sure I mean we'll get into the whole thing in a bit but uh yeah I, I was I was impressed all around it's weird to even sum up this year I was talking to Laura my fiance the other day humble brag uh, <laughs> just trying to remember what yeah like what happened what did we do was there anything that went down and they're like there's there's no checkpoints to even look at. I mean, you can think of movies or trips or whatever, nothing there. And it's like, okay, I've seen like five first run movies this year. I mean, probably more than that. During the entire pandemic, has anything stood out to you in the streaming realm? I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed Bill and Ted's. I'm embarrassed to say I never actually got around to Bill and Ted. What? I know, I know. I'm, I, I, we, well, we always, we always had, we had something scheduled. We were always planning on doing know. a Bill and Ted retrospective and watching all three of them. And I wanted to get Ryan Julio involved, but I think that was just one of those things. When that went to streaming, I completely understood why, but for some reason I just, I lost so much interest. And I know that makes me a snob, but to answer your question, uh, I did see two things that really stood out to me. And this could sort of lead us into a conversation about if, it, you know, what has been your favorite new thing that you've seen this year. Mm -hmm. uh, and the two that really stood out to me were The Vast of Night on Amazon, mm -hmm. which I thought was very interesting, very original. I don't know if it's a great movie, but it's a great calling card for this young filmmaker. And I, and he paid for it all himself, and he cast his friends, and it's just a very strong, interesting, original piece of work. And then the other one that really stood out to me, never rarely, sometimes, always, I believe was in theaters very briefly. I think it actually hit a couple of theaters before everything went. It's uh, Eliza Hittman's new movie, and I had heard it was a masterpiece, and it had been built up for me, and I finally got around to it on iTunes or something. I don't know, mid-June, something like that. And it was even better than I'd been led to believe it would be. Like, it's it's far and away the best film, best new film that I've seen this year. So if I had to make a top 10 list right now, that would be 
that would be on there. But our top 10, our rankings this year are going to be weird. I, I don't even know if I'm necessarily going to do the article that I usually write because I'm just not even sure how to go about crafting something like that this year. It's the same problem that the Oscars are going to have in April. Yeah. What counts? What are the parameters? How do we do this? But I guess we've, we've been asking ourselves that question all year. It's going to be a small pool and it's going to be late too because a number of these, you know, smaller uh, Oscar baby films are being released VOD sort of trickling in during January, right? So we'll, we'll see how these lists go. I don't want to pick my favorite 10 out of the 12 movies I've seen, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's no fun. Never, uh, rarely, sometimes, always, the name of it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean to get to that. I haven't gotten to that yet. I did really enjoy Vast of Night, though. It's fun. Yeah, really fun. Uh, I agree with you. Probably not a masterpiece. Just a really interesting, experimental, cool thing to do on a low budget. And uh, yeah, that guy definitely has has the calling card he's going to need uh, going forward here. Very polished, you know, very polished for a $700,000 tiny little movie shot in West Texas. It's pretty bold to yeah. do that, like, in-depth of a period piece for your for your opening movie, especially with that small budget. But yeah, really cool concept. It's free on Amazon Prime for anyone who wants it, so check it out. Mm -hmm. And that, I guess, sums up what we've seen in the last nine months. <laughs> well, I'm looking at the highest grossing films of 2020. Two highest grossing films are both Chinese films, The 800 and My People, My Homeland. Do you know what the highest grossing American film of 2020 is currently? Hint, it was one of the last films to be in theaters before everything shut yeah, down. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I know this, but I, I can't remember that far back now. What is it? Bad Boys for Life. Yeah. All right. 400, 427 million, Bad Boys for Life. Tenet coming in at number four with 360 million. Then Sonic the Hedgehog. Then another uh, Chinese film called Demon Slayer, Mugen Train. Then Doolittle, which is one of the most reviled films of 2020. <laughs> then another Chinese film called Zhang Jia. Then Birds of Prey. And then another Chinese film called Sacrifice. So... It's going to be a very interesting kind of asterisk on this year. If we're if we're just looking back and then now looking forward on what this is going to mean and where we see things going for the next couple of years. I mean, like what what strikes you the most? I know there's a lot of doom saying out there. Do you see any sort of kernels of hope or do you think we're sort of things are changed forever? We're 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 doing this uh, straight to streaming. Theaters are going down. Pull me off the ledge here, Matt. Yeah, I'll do my I'll do my utmost. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I you know I've been listening to uh, I'm a big fan of the Big Picture podcast, which is uh, the Ringer's main movie podcast with Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins. They're, they've been pretty good about keeping up weekly podcasts all all year long, and you know they're very philosophical about it. That like maybe things will never be the same, but maybe we were moving in that direction anyway. This has potentially accelerated things. Are movie theaters officially dead? I don't believe it's necessarily that dramatic, but movie theaters have been have been becoming something else for a long time. And Steven Spielberg is one of the first guys who said, look, movie theaters are not never going to go away, but movie theaters may potentially look more like Broadway theaters, you know, like it may get to the point where you not necessarily get dressed up, but maybe you end up, maybe you pay $30 or $40 for a ticket to go see Black Widow. There's a little more elegance and pomp and circumstance. The theater's a little nicer. They're cushier bar and food. And maybe it's a little more of a night out. And it's obviously going to be a little more expensive as a result, but maybe there's, you know, a, a, a band to be beforehand. You know, the Alamo Drafthouse has been kind of moving in this direction for a long time anyway, right? Like lots of pre-show material, a bar downstairs where you can hang out before or after. Like maybe it just becomes a little bit more of a, an event for event movies as opposed to just something you do on a Sunday 
afternoon after football. Because we've been talking about these mid-level movies kind of going away anyway. Maybe they don't go away. Maybe they just go to Netflix. And so maybe Netflix and Amazon and HBO Max, like maybe these, maybe these streaming services save the mid-budget movie. And is that ultimately, is that good? Like what's, what's more important to us that we get these kinds of movies that we like, or that we get to see them in a theater. I, I guess I'm going to err on the side of, I want the movie. Yeah. Not, I don't necessarily care where I, where I have to see it. Ultimately, I'm always going to love movie theaters. I'm always going to prefer to see th movies in theaters, but maybe we, maybe theaters will be just for the big Marvel star Wars, Pixar stuff. Everything else goes to a streaming service and then you get maybe your Alamo draft houses or your Nighthawks or whatever and they do specialty screenings they they premiere something that's going to be on Netflix a week before it goes to Netflix or something they do retrospective screenings so the filmmakers show up and there's Q&As and there's events and trivia I, I don't know I, I feel like there's opportunities out there for companies like Alamo draft house to be to get creative with this stuff There are a couple of things that I'm I'm optimistic about and one is like business and one is sort of general philosophical, but I do think that business-wise, this has a good chance to sort of remove the multiplex system from, you know, from the culture where there's 15 different movies playing. You have this huge menu of choice. Economics of what studios charge theaters for first-run movies and how they structure that. I mean, I'm sure you have a good understanding of, of what theaters have to pay for something like Black Widow, but it's it's a lot of money that they have to front, and they don't take any of really the first week or second week proceeds a lot of the time, right? It's been a it's been a seller's market for a long time. You know, like it's it's always been slanted toward the studios for obvious reasons. But I wouldn't be surprised if we go back to a model where the uh, the studios actually own the theaters again. Netflix is already buying up theaters, right? Netflix bought the Paris Theater, Caddy Corner from the um, Plaza Hotel in New York. They bought the American, the Egyptian Theater here in LA. I wouldn't be surprised if if these theaters or if these studios, rather, particularly Netflix, start buying up some of these theater chains. The reason that that we went away from that in the, I guess it was in the 30s, was because of monopo uh, monopolistic concerns, right? Yeah. The Supreme Court decided to break up all this stuff, so that's why so many theaters have the names of studios, like in Seattle, for example, the Paramount Theater was obviously owned by Paramount Studios in the in the 20s. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called that. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if we go back to that model because I don't know if these theater chains are going to be able to sustain themselves indefinitely. So it might just be the Warner Brothers Theater where they just play DC stuff and Christopher Nolan movies and Clint Eastwood movies. And it might just be the Netflix Theater where they play Netflix movies. And it might just be the Disney Theater where they play Star Wars movies and Marvel movies and, and Pixar movies. Is, is that a bad thing? I don't know. Is that scary? I, I, I don't know enough about economics to be able to decide if that's scary or not. A, a Disney-owned theater is scarier than a Netflix-owned theater, right? Like, Netflix is in the business of keeping and gaining subscribers, and therefore their movies are going to be more varied, more niche sometimes. They're going to try to hit every sort of demographic. And as we've seen, they've artistically, I think Netflix is doing a pretty good job, right? They're they're giving auteurs the, you know, the freedom to make the, the mid-level movies that they want, whether it's Mank or Roma or, or what have you. Irishman. Yeah, Irishman. I don't know if that would change if they started owning theaters. I, I doubt that would ever become the main driver of their bottom line. I don't know. I don't really want a Disney-owned theater, right? I I feel like that's, that's pretty scary to me. Because basically... AMC has been a Disney-owned theater for the last however many years, right? <laughs> well, that's I get maybe that's why I don't. That's maybe that's why it doesn't scare me because at any given time in a multi in a Cinemark or an AMC theater or Lowe's theater or whatever in a Regal, 
it might just be all Disney movies, you know, it might be three Marvel movies and a Star Wars movie and two Pixar movies. I mean, and a, a Frozen 2, uh, you know, like you're talking about moving away from this kind of like Cineplex model. These big studios have basically swallowed up all the screens anyway. And the, and the mid-level, mid-level stuff has either gotten, you know, like we don't get mid-level studio comedies anymore. Even. And honestly, we don't even get them that often on the streamers, which I know is 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 a issue very close to your heart. Yeah. So maybe if things move towards streaming and we can make this streaming model successful, maybe we start getting more of those movies again, and we just have to live with the fact that we're not going to get to see it with a big audience, and we're not going to have that experience. And maybe future generations just won't know what it's like to see there's something about Mary with a huge audience where the place is just going crazy and there's an energy in the theater. Maybe that'll just be the vestige of a bygone era. I'm sorry, that this isn't helping get, get, getting you back from the ledge. No, 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 no. <laughs> it kind of is because I do, there's something in me that believes that this, the pandemic is going to force people, people are realizing how much they crave the crowd, right? How much they crave being amongst other people during their entertainment. So we, we're going to have a, a year where people have only been able to watch movies home alone or with whoever lives with them, right? I think once this thing lifts, once we have the vaccine, once theaters start playing stuff again, I think movies are going to go gangbusters in the theaters, at least for a while. It's the you don't know what you're missing till it's gone idea yeah. that like, well, we, we, we truly understand how much we love the theatrical experience because we won't get it for a, we won't have it for a year. A- another sort of optimistic thought is that we're going to have such a backlog of content. I mean, we're, we, we may get to a position, we may get to a place where we just get like five new movies every weekend for six months. You know, I, the, the studios are going to have to crunch the numbers on that and they may just keep kicking these cans down the road because they don't want to blow their proverbial load too quickly. Some uh, you know, media analysts have speculated that 2020 could be like, I'm not, I'm sorry, not 2020, 2021 potentially, if there is a vaccine, could be one of the highest revenue years in, in the history of movie theaters, simply because there'll be so much content and because people, like you said, will be hungry for it and be hungry to get out there. It's a question of whether or not people were moving away from theaters anyway. Will they move back to theaters because they're, uh, they're hungry for it, because they've been deprived of it? Or will this model just kind of go away like whether theaters release this stuff en masse or not will people return to theaters would people be too scared to return to theaters even if there is a vaccine i think that's a very important question yeah it's interesting i mean i think that's a good segue to to hbo max right i was a little surprised at that announcement not that they were going to start doing it with you know they're doing with wonder woman but that they were going to do with all their 2020 slate. Yeah, for those who haven't been made aware of this, Warner Brothers announced last week that they will be releasing all, I believe, I think think they said all content, right? Like every theatrical release will be released day and date on HBO Max simultaneously. So I think what that means is that if there are theaters in this country that are open, you can go see The Suicide Squad, right? But the, here, here's my question, and and I don't, I don't know if you necessarily have an answer for this. I haven't, I haven't dug deep enough, but if you're in a town where the theaters are open, you can obviously still access it via HBO Max, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you, get, you don't get locked out. It's not like a blackout thing, like you're you're in a, a certain market where a football game isn't going to be played because it's a local team or whatever, right? So you will have the you have the option to go to theaters or watch it at home, and 99% of people are going to watch it at home, right? Well, we'll see. I mean, I, I guess we'll find out. I think that's the interesting thing. I think I think Warner Brothers will be doing a. a Gaining a lot of information here because the idea that is that if people could watch something at home, they would default to watching it at home because it's easier. Post-COVID, my instinct is that it's not going to be the case for a lot of people. I think people will often default to actually going out 
and doing something, especially if it's next winter. Also, just economically, I think I think the reason they did this is if you're going to do one or two, okay, that's good. That's fine. People might sign up for HBO Max as a result. But if you do all of it, you're going to you're grabbing from this huge pool of people who are now going to become HBO Max subscribers. So, and that's just money straight to them. So, obviously they've been crunching the numbers. Obviously they have smart people working for them. So, I wouldn't be surprised if this ended up being economically feasible for them. Uh, with all these movies, despite how big budget some of them are, right? And they're also thinking long term, right? People who sign up for HBO Max are paying ten bucks a month for fifteen, Intel. I think. Is yeah, it 15? thirteen for yeah. yeah, it's more expensive than Netflix, that's for sure. So I can't reconcile this math though. If I am not an HBO Max subscriber, but I want to watch Wonder Woman, so I sign up for HBO Max in December and I pay my fifteen dollars or whatever, which is what I would have paid to see to see it in the theater in most markets. Okay, so I pay the fifteen dollars, I get access to it. Now I can watch it 12 times if I want to before the end of before I have to pay my 15 bucks again. And then I pay $15 again in January and I watch X amount of movies. If I was somebody who was going to go see Wonder Woman three times in the theater and pay $15 every time and Warner Brothers is sort of counting on that, how are they able to make back their investment in Wonder Woman if I'm only paying once to watch it three times plus everybody in my household is not paying for it as well. So if I was going to take my family to go see it, I'm not paying for all those individual tickets. We're all watching it together. Oh, P.S. Also gave my friend, you know, my parents have my HBO Max password. They're not paying for it. They're watching it. My girlfriend's over here and she's using mine as well. She Now she's not paying the $15 ticket she would have paid to go see it. I just have a hard time reconciling the math on this stuff. I mean, that, obviously they've got a plan or they've given, they've given these things. Yeah. I'm not the first person to have this thought. I mean, if X amount of people stay subscribers for five, 10 years, Years, that's a lot of money. That's what they're counting on. The theater model too is they Warner Brothers isn't getting all that money of your fifteen dollars, especially not the second and third time because a lot of that money sure. is going to the th- uh, to the theater. Given the way you and I go see movies multiple times, I, I think we overrate the number of people who probably actually do uh, mul- okay. multiple viewings sure. of, of films. And let's say they have five big releases, big budget releases over the course of the year, and someone signs up. And they paid 12 months of HBO Max just for those five movies. You know, that, that, that helps too. So okay. I, I'm guessing it's not their ideal situation, of course. And the, and the theaters are certainly pissed off about it, I would imagine. I, I Terrified, I'm sure, is what they are. Yeah. And it's just, it's just weird that Dune is going to be released VOD the same day that comes out in theaters, you know? Yeah, I've I've got a I've got a small list. This is certainly not the the breadth of um of everything that's going to come out from Warner Brothers next year, but just just off of this quick list. Godzilla versus Kong, The Suicide Squad, The Conjuring, colon, The Devil Made Me Do It. Uh what is that? The fourth? Is this the fourth Conjuring movie? In the Heights, uh Wonder Woman of course, Dune, The Matrix 4, Those Who Wish Me Dead, The Little Things, The Many Saints of Newark, The uh, Sopranos uh prequel. Uh, Mortal Kombat. We're getting a new Mortal Kombat movie. Did anybody ask for a new Mortal Kombat movie? I did. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, then then they're pitching it right at you, sir. Uh, the Tom and Jerry movie, the Space Jam reboot, Judas and the Black Messiah, Reminiscence, and Malignant. Malignant. Huh? Okay. These are these are big movies that will come out uh, on your HBO Max subscription starting on Christmas Day, I believe. You know, continuing indefinitely. They haven't said, we're just doing this for 2021. This could be the new world order. And how long before Disney follows suit? Before Paramount 
comes up with their own streaming service or decides to partner with Hulu or something, you know, yeah. like this, this is going to become, this may become the norm. I mean, Disney, Disney did it with Mulan, but they asked for an additional like 25 bucks or whatever, right? They, they did. And I think that the backlash was so negative. I mean, that movie had negative backlash for a number of reasons, but I think people were so uh, uh, sort of vocally vitriolic about it that when it came time to do Soul, which will also be released on Christmas Day, they decided to just go ahead and throw it up there for no extra charge, which is probably the move, especially on as a Christmas present for their subscribers. Yeah. The question becomes, at what point do they announce that Black Widow is going to Disney Plus? Yeah. That conversation is definitely happening behind closed doors, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's there's a lot of hope of a vaccine getting out there within the next few months, but theaters are, are like the worst place you could be during a, during a COVID outbreak. So I, I'm sure you read the um, stories about the Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson having a conversation with Apple TV Plus about potentially about No Time to Die potentially moving to Apple because Apple TV Plus of the streamers seems to be the one that's having the hardest time branding itself. It's having the hardest time kind of breaking out. So HBO Max to a lesser extent, which is I think why they're doing this because they're trying to like generate some interest and generate some buzz and generate some conversation and, and get something going. But HBO or uh, Apple TV Plus seems to be the one that's struggling the most to get out of the gates. Well, Apple. And I so, mean, don't get me started on Apple TV Plus. They have no hope. They have. They, they have no anchors. They have no like, uh, you know, they they have no con- past content. They have no nostalgia content on there. Uh, yeah. For, for people to when it's only new series that people have never heard of, they're not going to just immediately plot down ten bucks a month for something they've never seen or watched. So that's why the James Bond thing would have been an interesting experiment because it would have been obviously would have been required viewing. A lot of us would. I don't have an Apple TV Plus subscription. I would have obviously had to do it. But uh, the number that I heard, the, the the check they were willing to write was somewhere between six hundred and. Seven hundred million dollars, and the broccolis are like, mm, Spectre made a billion, you know, and, and Skyfall made one point three billion or whatever. So it's like, thank you for the meeting, but uh, we're just not ready to. So we're gonna push it back to April, and we're gonna we're gonna hope for the best. I think they're in a good situation because it's not like a bond comes out every five years or whatever. So they don't need to. They can shelve it as long as they need to. Can they see? Here's this. This begs another question: like, how long can these studios afford to shelve these things? You know, like how much of a shelf life do these things have? At what point do we lose interest? P.S. They're also paying profit participation bonuses they got to keep paying this stuff out whether the movies come out or not who's no time to die is mgm and universal i think and annapurna so they're still having to pay all the profit participants like daniel craig's probably still getting a check uh whether the movie comes out or not he'll get a bigger check when the movie comes out and it hits a certain milestone but there's interest on all this stuff i mean these 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 studios are still going out of pocket for these movies, whether they come out or not. Plus, you know, the marketing machine is already working. Daniel Craig and Rami Malek have already done X amount of interviews and stuff that are also sitting on shelves. Like, there's a whole ecosystem that is stalled because of this. Can you just wait 18 months for this kind of thing? I mean, I guess we'll find out. We'll find out. We'll see. <laughs> I guess we'll find out whether you can or not. But, but Mank... Uh, watch this segue. But Mank was never intended to be theatrical to begin with, right? Like Mank was always a Netflix product. I mean, it would have gone, it would have played in some theaters, of course, but Netflix didn't pick up Mank the way they did with the Chicago 7. The trial of Chicago 7 was picked up by Netflix from Paramount, whereas I think Mank was a Netflix deal uh, all the way across the board from the very beginning. Uh, Yeah, it's a Netflix production. I mean, it, it did come out in some theaters last week. By the way, I heard I heard seventy five seven played in seventy five theaters around across the country. I read today it made an average of three hundred dollars per screen or something like that. <laughs> Jesus. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but but anyway, I think in a perfect world it would have gone similarly to to Roma, right? right. 
or the Irishman. Yeah, or the Irishman. Sure. So yeah, anyone who wants it can have it. It'll be in sort of art house cinema. But yeah, this is a Netflix production. There was no expectation of, of big box office uh, dollars. Just another Netflix original meant to keep the Netflix subscribers happy. And Fincher was an early adopter. Like he's been in bed with Netflix since House of Cards anyway. So, and Mindhunter, of course. So like Netflix is... Steven Soderbergh and, and and his David Fincher's buddy Steven Soderbergh and himself they've been they've been on the Netflix train for a long time so this is not weird that his film that he would do a movie completely produced by Netflix yeah and, and Netflix Netflix's big advantage or or their the way they acquire talent is to tell the talent do whatever you want and we will stay out of the way and that's a big draw for someone like David Fincher it's a good way to get a megalomaniacal um, perfectionist attention attention right yeah so House of Cards starts in uh, looks like House of Cards starts in 2013 February 1st 2013 it's it's Netflix's first or second show it's either that or orange is it's before orange is the new black okay. i think it was their first original the first series okay. and interestingly enough fincher's been trying to get mank off the ground since the 90s obviously it's his father's passion project it's father's script and speaking of house of cards apparently he originally wanted to make it with uh kevin spacey in the gary oldman role and jodie foster i believe in the lily collins role but i could be wrong about it. i presume it wouldn't have been jodie foster in the amanda seafried role I couldn't. I don't know if I could see her as Marion Davies, but it just said starring Kevin Spacey, Jodie Foster. He tried to get it made right after the game. Didn't happen. It was uh, shelved for a long time, but it's obviously something he's been passionate about doing for 20 years. It's cool that he got this off the ground and Netflix was, was the right place for him. You know, going into it, I was kind of expecting, we all know the old trope. Hollywood loves to make movies about Hollywood. They love the big old circle jerk. They love to award movies that are about movies. And so that's kind of what I was expecting and, and I was I was hoping and uh, assumed it wouldn't be that sort of straightforward sort of nostalgia trip about the magic of the movies. Thankfully, it wasn't. This movie did, uh, I will say, it caught me by surprise. I didn't expect this movie to be a political movie, Matt. Did you know that going in? I did not, and I'm glad you brought that up because this is a very political movie. It actually feels very intentionally pitched towards this time. Like I said, they've been trying to make this movie for 20 years, so it may have just been a, a happy accident or a coincidence. But yes, this is a very subconsciously political film, but it's mirroring Citizen Kane, right? Citizen Kane is also a very political film. To answer your question, no, I was not expecting that, and it, it took me a little, it took me a moment to kind of catch up with the rhythm of the film when I saw it going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I was expecting more of just sort of a procedural about the the making of Citizen Kane and how how Mank fit into that, and in doing so, I was expecting sort of a a rose you know rose colored glasses look at old hollywood it's not it's sort of the opposite of all these movies that have ever been about old hollywood it really shows the warts shows the power structure shows the how things have and have not changed in the world and, and to your point man it does seem extremely pitched to to today's time and the politics of today which makes the fact that David Fincher's dad, Jack Fincher, you know, wrote this 20 years ago or so, right? Or over 20 years ago. I wonder how much of the script was altered. I know there was a rewrite. I know Eric Roth, in fact, did a rewrite. This is what the whole movie's about. So I, I can't imagine they structurally changed it that much. It, 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 you know, fired me up, but also made me kind of sad because nothing's fucking changed, right? It is an interesting, the more things change, the more they stay the same kind of movie, which feels like a very intentional Eric Roth thing. It's a lot of that in Forrest, Forrest Gump, for example, or 
Benjamin Button. I, I guess he has a he has a relationship with Eric Roth because Eric Roth wrote Curious Case of Benjamin Button, didn't he? Yeah. So he does not have a screenwriting credit. He does have a producing credit, but apparently he did uh, what I presume is a pretty dramatic polish on this thing. Jack Fincher is the only one with a writing credit. It, it was definitely there's a lot of things about this movie that I that are, I, I, f- I felt were sort of unexpected, but I think you could say that about a lot of Fincher films. It is not at all a procedural about the making of Citizen Kane. I'll just go ahead and spoil that for everybody who goes into it expecting that or wanting that. Uh, this is 100% about the writing process. You they, they they don't set foot on the set of Citizen Kane once, which is kind of interesting because I came into it having seen and having loved. Um, the HBO film RKO 281, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you've probably seen or at least are familiar with, came out in 1999. Oh, hey, look at that. <laughs> and starred uh, Liev Schreiber as, uh, Schreiber as Orson Welles and John Malkovich as um, Mankiewicz and James Cromwell, actually, as William Randolph Hearst. It's actually quite a wonderful movie. It's probably, I'm assuming it's on HBO Max somewhere. It's an HBO movie. That movie is all about boots on the ground making of Citizen Kane, and this movie is not. This is about the titular Mank and... It's very intentional, the decision to title the film that, because this movie chooses which legacy it wants to believe and which legacy it wants to portray. I mean, this is a very controversial story, and there's been many, many articles written over the years about this story. The legacy of this particular script is that Fincher, Jack Fincher wrote this basically based on the Colleen, pa- Colleen the Pauline Kale article which I believe is called Raising Kane. Yeah, I was reading the Wikipedia. I think that was Peter Bogdanovich's response to Pauline Kael's article about it. Okay. Maybe. Okay, so yeah, I'm, l- I'm looking at it right here. The 120-page draft of the initial script revealed that Jack Fincher closely followed a claim voiced by Paula Kael, Pauline Kael, the legendary Pauline Kael, in her 1971 New Yorker article, Raising Kane, okay. that Wells did not deserve screenwriting credit. The article angered many critics, including Wells' friend and fellow filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich, who rebutted Kale's claims point by point in, quote, the Kane mutiny. Oh, okay. <laughs> in, in, October, in an October 1972 article for Esquire. So, yes, this is a controversial issue. Been, you know, they've been talking about it since 1942. One. I think you're even underselling it about the writing process. I mean, it, it's it's barely even about that, right? Like, I mean, they don't go into how he wrote it. How I mean, they, they go into his background and where he probably came up with the story. This is not one of your typical writers writing a movie about a writer type thing, right? Like, yeah, it's not adaptation. Like the, where the inspiration comes from and all that. Yeah, it, it really is more about sort of class structures and a guy who was in the machine and now is out of the machine. The the thing I find super interesting and it it makes it really interesting because this is on Netflix is that this is a movie that is pretty anti-Hollywood in in a lot of ways. Anti the the structure of of studios. It kind of posits that the only way to make, you know, a great piece of cinema is to have it be done by an outsider without any intervention from from a top, right? Um, And the the fact that he brought this to Netflix and made this on Netflix, I think is, I think it's a little bit of Fincher thumbing his nose at the studio system. Sure, sure, sure. Which is basically something he's been sort of ramping up toward for a long time. I mean, he's always been a studio filmmaker. He's never, with the exception of Netflix stuff, he's never made an independent film, you know, from Alien 3 on. He's always worked for studios, but he's certainly been vocal about the issues that he's had, particularly with Alien 3. I think that's a really interesting perspective that this is like Fincher's commentary on a broken system 
And again, going back to the 40s and saying, look, it was broken then, it, it might be broken now. Maybe the way that we rebuild this thing is by going to the streamers or whatever. Although, you know, I, I, Netflix is getting to the point where sooner or later, everybody becomes the man, right? Like yeah. you get successful enough, you become the man. So Netflix is a studio for all intents and purposes. Does Netflix allow David Fincher to do things? Does, does Netflix allow David Fincher to shoot in black and white, whereas Paramount would not have? Do they, do they, they allow him to cast a no-name, quote-unquote, as Orson Welles, whereas Paramount would have insisted he cast Liev Schreiber or something, maybe. Yeah, I think it just comes down to, um, you know, whatever David Fincher can hold his nose and live with and wherever he can get away with the most and he can get the most control and he can have the least amount of intervention, which at this point in the history of studio filmmaking is Netflix yeah. because they want to be in bed with these guys. But you're right. I mean, this is this is not necessarily about celebrating Mankiewicz as a genius or even sort of lionizing the writing process. It is very much a, a, a film about politics, a film about studio politics, a film about California politics, and a film about alcoholism, you know, a film about somebody who can't get out of their own way, about somebody who maybe their self-destructive nature is necessary for their genius, you know, is a yeah. necessary component of their genius. Oh, I'm an artist. I, you know, I'm allowed to get away with X, Y, or Z because I, I need it for my creative process or whatever. And it's interesting to watch a profile of a person who isn't necessarily making excuses for himself, but has made a decision to live a certain lifestyle because that's what it's going to take for him to survive in this system and for him to be able to kind of look down his nose at the like he he doesn't necessarily want to be ensconced in this system but he has figured out a way whether it's booze or whatever to be able to live with himself in this environment he died very young he was obviously very tortured uh he made a lot of mistakes and you kind of get the impression he was a pretty darn he was potentially he had a lot of demons well i mean he had a lot of demons but i mean you you get the idea despite his good naturedness despite how generous he is that he's a pretty misanthropic person like he 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 sees the world as sort of this power corrupts and he he's been around the powerful he's seen how the sausage is made and he's not impressed you know if the world writ large is not going to be introspective and try to improve why should he right yeah somebody who's made their peace with um with the with the broken world <laughs> and now and now wants to reflect it to itself and then writes his masterpiece by very effectively portraying how power can cor absolutely corrupt somebody like William Randolph Hearst in, in, and how that sort of power and that sort of corruption and that sort of evil, if you even want to put that word on it, can then infect so many different things, so many different people, so many different systems politics and journalism and Hollywood. And, and so I, I guess what we're saying here is uh, this is a pretty good subject for a movie. Like this is a pretty interesting, <laughs> this is an interesting yeah. protagonist for a movie. Let's make a movie about this. It might take us 20 years, but this is enough reason to make a movie. How'd you feel about the movie? I really loved it. I really did. It's a pretty smooth ride. It's, it's, it's not slow or unexciting. Like I'm not the biggest biopic guy. It's not something I'm yearning for all the time. And I'm not yearning for movies about movies but the political stuff really hit me there's a couple of just incredible scenes one sort of dinner lounge party scene that is out of this world good that leads into a great scene with gary oldman and amanda seyfried kind of the centerpiece scene of the movie really right that that dinner party i mean it's it's the most like politically overt yeah I mean, it's, 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 it's literally, kind of literally him monologuing about yeah, it's yeah, the mission yeah. statement of the movie really yeah i mean there's the whole the anxiety of election night was very uh prescient <laughs> uh there's a great scene there and then you know him sort of his denouement his showing up 
wasted at the castle home of uh, William Randolph Hearst. Another great thing. So yeah, overall, I I really loved it. I loved that it wasn't what I expected. I, David Fincher, he's a he's a genius for a reason, you know. I really, really liked it. I'm not sure if I loved it. I need to watch it again. It, it, it was a lot, um, as his films often are. Gave me a lot to think about. It's it's sumptuous for somebody who fetishizes the high contrast black and white image the way that I do. It was just an absolute orgiastic feast for the eyes. I'm not sure how entertained I was by it. I was constantly compelled, and I was obviously in the pocket for the subject matter. I don't know how much fun it was. Not that it necessarily needs to be fun to make to make it a great movie. I'm just not sure how, how entertained I was by it. And that sort of leads me to, to sort of speculate as to whether this movie would have worked in theaters for a wide audience. I just, I have a hard time imagining a wide audience connecting with this movie. I certainly wouldn't have seen it being a big hit if it was made. Even if Paramount allowed him to make it in this manner and it had been released with as, with a big Oscar campaign, um, you know, like it traditionally would have. I just have a hard time imagining this movie connecting with, with a mainstream audience. Not that it necessarily was intended to, regardless of who made it. Oldman is obviously amazing. Uh, he is completely dialed in and completely committed, uh, which of course we always expect him to be. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I obviously, I can't stop thinking about it and I can't wait to watch it again. It can get very dark and get very unpleasant to watch this guy destroy himself and destroy his relationships and, and, ma and make mistakes. But I mean, that's the point of sort of an anti-hero. And I loved the structure of it. Obviously, if a film is going to be sort of paying homage to Citizen Kane, it's going to need to have a certain amount of narrative, uh, of unconventional narrative, right? I think we'd be disappointed if it didn't. So whether it was Jack Fincher or whether it was David Fincher or whether it was Eric Roth, I'm not sure who's responsible for this. I presume it probably uh, Jack Fincher, but you basically have you have two timelines happening uh, being cross-cut between, right? You've got like Mank sort of coming up in the late 30s finding the thing that he needs to write about and then you have Mank in 1940 writing about that thing. So it's his writing process in one timeline and then it's him figuring out that the thing he needs to write about is William Randolph Hearst in the other timeline, right? Because yep. of his relationship with his wife, because of his relationship with his brother, because of his relationship with Irving Thalberg, because of his relationship with Louis B. Mayer, because of his relationship with Hearst, obviously, and, mm -hmm. and Marion Davies. So what a brilliant master story. Like, I, I mean, of course, like when you watch it, you're like, oh yeah, of course, great, fantastic, yeah, that's that's exactly how you should be telling this story. So I was um, I was I was heartened by that for sure, and not at all surprised that they came up with a with a brilliant sort of narrative gambit in that regard. And that might be my favorite part of the whole thing. And and it's it's very social network in that way, right? Like the climax of this movie felt very much like the climax of social network in terms of when the timelines do finally come together and when they clash, it felt very much like deposition in the social network clashing with Andrew Garfield and Jesse Eisenberg having their clash in the offices of Facebook. The final dinner party mixed with the final conversation with Wells, just dynamite, fantastic. Hearst walking, Hearst walking Mank out of the party and telling him the... Uh, Mm -hmm. telling him the uh, organ grinder story, which we, you know, we knew would come up eventually because they teased it multiple times. But what a, if, if I'm Charles Dance, who's playing uh, William Randolph Hearst, and I see that, I'm just like, oh, yes. <laughs> Can't wait to fucking just make a meal out of this monologue. It's going to be glorious. Uh, yeah, especially because uh, he didn't get much else to work with in this movie, honestly. But Yeah, yeah, he's brooding a lot of the time, but he finally gets a nice, juicy thing to to end with, which is great. He's he's so wonderful. I love Charles Dance. To answer your earlier question, I, I don't think it would play all that great in front of in front of audiences i don't know i mean I, I feel like there's a lot of nuance and depth in this movie and there's a lot of nuance and depth in the character of mank you said you can't stop thinking about it i i feel the same way like there's a lot to lot to bite off here and you know i've I, i've skimmed some some reviews just looked at the rotten tomatoes 
and uh, I haven't gone too in-depth, but it doesn't seem like they're focusing on this political thing as much as we are. Like, I, I felt this was an overtly political movie. I thought that was the point of the movie. I just don't know if I've ever really considered Fincher a political filmmaker. I mean, I, I don't think it's too extreme to say this is his most political film, but I just, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking now about other, I mean, there's there's politics involved with the social network for sure, but maybe the game is actually a, a surreptitious political satire, you know, yeah, or yeah. an allegory or something. But yeah, this to me feels like Fincher really putting himself out there or at least putting his father's political ideals out there. This movie made me like David Fincher the person a whole lot more. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking about sort of sort of like critics reactions. I think it's 88% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, Fincher's been a critic, critical darling for a long time now, which is kind of interesting considering that he came up as a pulpy, sort of thought of as a pulpy music video director, and now he's he's a critical darling. Even something like uh, Gone Girl, pulpy as that is, still very critically acclaimed and was nominated for Oscars. So I'm not surprised that it's been critically embraced, but if you do dive a little deeper, you will notice that there are certain critics who are just very, very turned off by this. And maybe they're the type of critics who don't like Fincher anyway, so maybe they're predisposed. But there are a couple, I did find a couple of reactions that were just very, very negative and very much like this is just cold, there's no heart to it, I couldn't connect with anybody. You know, that's the kind of stuff, those are the kind of criticism Fincher has sort of dealt with for a long time. He's, he's often thought of as a as a cold sort of emotionless filmmaker in some ways, which I actually sort of tend to disagree with, but I have seen some of those reactions. Like, it's beautiful to look at, great story, and the performances are great, but it, there's just nothing to connect to. There's no humanity to it. I have I have seen some of those reactions. Yeah, I mean... I, I don't agree with them, but they're out there. I disagree. I, I, I think what these people <laughs> these people are just missing the nuance in this stuff because he plays the emotional, like the character emotional highs lower than most, and he plays you know, the, the character lows higher than most, right? Like, they, there's no super emotional, I'm an alcoholic scene in this movie, although there are some really dark things that happen. And there are some, you know, big wins throughout the movie, but they're they're downplayed, right? So I, I think he's more focused on sort of the, the realism of, of these characters and, and not making it sort of over-the-top Hollywood-type stuff. Again, I this is a movie I am excited to, to revisit, and it wasn't a movie... I was all that excited to to watch. I'm, I'm stoked that uh, I was I was able to sit back and watch a movie and be uh, delightfully surprised. Be swept away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this was a movie that had been on my radar for a long time. It's right in my wheelhouse. It's totally my subject matter. I think I was. I think I did come into it with a certain amount of expectation, and I was surprised by the direction that it took. And I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome that it surprised me. But I think part of me sort of like struggling a little bit with trying to figure out exactly how I feel about it is just based on a certain amount of ex uh, uh, certain expectations that are not Fincher's problem and he shouldn't he shouldn't have to worry about my expectations <laughs> but fitting it into his overall oeuvre you know we've never really we've, we haven't covered him in an oeuvre because I feel like he is his oeuvre is so talked about and so widely covered I'm not sure if anybody needs our, our opinion about it necessarily but I do think that this film fits in in kind of an interesting way it is his first black and white film uh, I believe if I'm not mistaken. And it definitely feels as like deliberate and intentional and every single frame feels perfect the way that his films often do. Of course, there's already stories about aforementioned uh, drunken party scene that Gary Oldman did certain takes over a hundred times. Amanda Seyfried has, has complained that she did certain takes over 200 times. Uh, or maybe they're just playing into the Fincher mythology. Who knows? But yeah, there is, there is an interesting thing going on in terms of the infamous perfectionist auteur 
making a film about two perfectionist auteurs, one writer and one director in Mankiewicz and Wells. Were you disappointed that there wasn't more Wells in this movie? It's He is a supporting character, for sure. He's very supporting, and I... I liked it. I, I I didn't mind that he wasn't too involved because I don't think the whole eventual feud between the two was like, that wasn't the meat of the story that they were trying to tell. Read in the Wikipedia entry that the first, they edited it down because uh, Fincher thought his dad's script was a little too harsh on Wells, maybe painted him into a negative a light. I don't, I don't mind this. And, and maybe people say that the final scene, he comes a little out of nowhere with his... Uh, with his attitude and anger, but I don't know. It's it's Orson Welles. I'll I'll believe anything really you put on screen. So well, <laughs> I, I loved the fact. Yes, uh, fair. I loved the fact that he's kind of just like this specter who is always kind of around the periphery, and you're always hearing him over the phone, or you're always seeing his his silhouette in the background. Like I love that he's. I I wouldn't say he's the villain of the film, and I don't necessarily even want to spoil that part of the film for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. But I just like the fact that he's just sort of this looming presence who's just always kind of around, and you're always seeing him sort of in shadow, and you're always seeing him in the distance, or you're hearing him over the phone. And this guy Tom Burke, whose work I was not familiar with, sounds great sounds just like him i mean the first thing you do when you cast an orson wells you cast somebody playing orson wells is you got to have a voice right so that's why you cast lee f schreiber for example or uh, or an ed wood the voice of i think vincent d'onofrio plays him but i think they use the voice of the guy who plays brain from pinky on the brain right because he sounds just like orson and i'm embarrassed to say i don't know that actor that voice actor's name off the top of my head but he sounds just like him he's awesome so yeah he, he's always kind of he's always kind of like lurking in the shadows which i liked but this is i mean don't don't mistake it there's a reason that this movie is is called mank and not mank and orson they do a good job very early on of setting the tone it's a good character uh decision where you can sort of take houseman and how he reacts to the presence of Orson Welles versus how Mank deals with Orson Welles, who he's not intimidated by, no compunction with, you know, giving him the short shrift or, or just having a normal breezy conversation with him. So I, I, I didn't mind the lack of Orson Welles because I guess people maybe would have liked some show-stopping Orson Welles scenes throughout the movie, but... Again, this movie's called Mank for a reason. If anybody's interested in this kind of stuff, if anybody's interested in Orson Welles and John Houseman and all these guys, uh, check out a film from, I think it's a 99 film actually, called Cradle Will Rock. It's a Tim Robbins film. Yeah, I've seen that movie. It's a, it's a really fun movie, and uh, Carrie always plays John Houseman, and Angus McFadden, Angus McFadden plays Orson Welles, and he's very he's very charming in it. So it's about the public theater in New York. It's about Orson Welles before Citizen Kane. So if you're interested in Orson Welles' work with, the, with Mercury Theater in New York before all this stuff when he was, I don't know, 23 years old or something, Something. Angus McFadden was not 23 years old when he played that role, but uh, but it's a really cool movie. I highly recommend it. Sort of stylistically, it's obviously shot in black black and white. It is attempting to be evocative of Greg Tolan's approach to Citizen Kane. You and I, of course, saw Citizen Kane together in film school. Um, I don't think it was either of our first screening of that film, but we watched it together in Art of the Cinema because it is obviously required viewing for well, it should be required viewing for everybody, but certainly for film I think, students. I think we probably watched it in uh, class in high school together. That's probably right. Yeah, we yeah. may have watched it in music in the movies yeah. uh, at, at one point as well, because it's obviously a very famous score. So Fincher is obviously doing something here where he is attempting to be evocative of a certain visual approach. How did you feel about the film being sort of evocative of a tonal approach? Like, there was times when I'm like, oh, we're really, really trying to be Citizen Kane here. And there was times when I'm like, 
we're really veering way to the other side of the road uh, tonally or, you know, occasionally there'll be some like very intentional profanity that really like pops you right out of that whole period piece deal. I don't know. What did you, what did you think about this movie tonally? Because I think it's I think it's intentional, but I also think it's kind of nuanced. Literally, the, the audio is is kind of I wouldn't say off putting. It's in mono and it's 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 a little jarring at the beginning, but you get used to it pretty quick. Tonally, I, I, I didn't mind it. I mean, there were a lot of sort of morose snappy dialogue in the form of snappy dialogue and like Gary Oldman makes says a lot of clever clever things in the, in you know the course of casual conversation but yep. uh, they're not it's not played for laughs necessarily i didn't mind anything of the time i mean did anything strike you as sort of off throughout the movie no it's just there's there's times when it goes like real like we we're talking about the uh, the election night scene yeah. and that's like stylistically one of the most sort of and that really feels like Fincher kind of like leaning into something. Mankiewicz is drunk and his candidate is losing and there's champagne flowing and mm-hmm. people laughing. It, it gets very surreal for a moment. I liked it a lot, but it felt very much like we're, we're, we're really trying to go for something here. We're really trying to, um, to gesture at Wells, at Wells' work. That scene was very evocative of how I felt on election night. So I, 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 thought, <laughs> enough, I, yeah. I thought he absolutely nailed it. So. Yeah, <laughs> You know what movie I couldn't stop thinking of? This is going to be really obscure because nobody really saw this movie, and I think I'm the only one who defends it, but I actually really like this movie. Did you ever see The Good German, the Soderbergh movie with Clooney and Kate Blanchett and no, Tobey Maguire? No, I was told not to. It, it's a weird movie, <laughs> and it may be, it's maybe even a bad movie. I liked it, but it's it's attempting to be evocative of Casablanca, to, and it doesn't succeed, but like everything about it, the, the look, the tone, the score... Uh, it's just it's really leaning into this Michael Curtiz thing. And then all of a sudden there'll be like a just a scene of incredible violence or like a very graphic sex scene or Tobey Maguire will just start shouting racial epithets. Or, and you're like, oh, whoa, OK, we're not in Casablanca world anymore. And it's just kind of interesting to watch these filmmakers who idolize these legends and tr- see if they can maybe potentially like swim in that pool. I think that just gets gets back to how sort of there's just a lot to take in with this movie. There's a lot to discuss, a lot to think about. And I, I think this movie, you know, I, I've said this before, but I think this movie will grow in esteem. I'm really curious to see where the legacy goes, but I suspect that this will be known 10, 15, 20 years from now as one of one of Fincher's best. Interesting. Okay, well, that was my next... I had two more questions for you. One was, where does this fall in his oeuvre? You think this is top half? I mean, it's it's, it's only been 24 hours since you've seen it. You don't have to make a decision right now. <laughs> I would I would definitely say top half, yeah. I got to give it I gotta give it some more thought. At this point, I'm not ready to, to um, declare a major. What... Uh, does this movie mean this is a very strange question and this is something that's changing every single day but what are this movie's oscar prospects hollywood loves movies about hollywood right uh, they do i i think just gary oldman's a slam dunk gary oldman's a slam dunk lack of options i think it'll probably get nominated for best picture almost certainly academy doesn't love david fincher well, he's got two nominations and no wins, right? Benjamin Button and The Social Network. Although, yeah. although I think in retrospect, everybody sort of agrees that The Social Network was a mistake. Like even on the night, it felt like a mistake, I think. Zodiac's so. a mistake. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that might be his greatest film. So the fact that it wasn't even nominated, it's a whole other, we can have a whole other conversation about Zodiac. But yeah, this seems, this seems like a situation where they may want to make, make up for the Mm -hmm. social network mistake. I'm not necessarily declaring him the winner right now, but this is a very directed film about somebody that many people consider to be the the greatest American director. So yeah, I I think, I think Jack Fincher is obviously going to get nominated and would, it's probably a pretty good bet to to be the winner eventually that'd be a fun posthumous win yeah it would be yeah i mean we just have to see where the the rest of these movies get sorted out because there aren't that many 
awards baity movies that are coming out in the next few weeks, right? If two of those are duds, then that really opens the field up. But I but I think yeah, picture, director, actor, writing is is almost assured for nominations. Amanda Seyfried, maybe. I thought she was wonderful. Um, yeah. The movie's very interested in her. The movie's mm-hmm. very interested in, in Marion Davies, and I and I appreciated that. And I felt she really showed up. Like, she really did her homework. She really brought it. The movie's very, very invested in her. It's very invested in that relationship she has with Mank. And that and there's a whole other biopic right there that I'd like to see, the Amanda Seyfried, Marion Davies spinoff. I'm, I'm fascinated by everything that's going on with her. That would be a fun, yeah, fun globetrotting adventure. Well, it would be fun to see her nominated for an actress who never got any respect, you know? who an act, she's Marion Davies was a joke, right? At least as far as the Hollywood system was concerned, you know? She never became a big movie star. So it'd be interesting to see a movie star that, that many people have sort of looked at as sort of being like a light weight actress in Amanda Seyfried playing someone who was considered to be a lightweight but putting in an incredible performance playing this person I, I think that I think there's a an interesting story there to be told and I and I'm so I'm rooting for her and I think she deserves it and then she's got more than enough screen time to justify a supporting actress oh for sure this is obviously probably the biggest Netflix release of the year you know coming on the heels of the trial of Chicago 7 which we can talk about at some point as we get closer to Oscars and then we're going to get Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in a couple weeks which uh, early reviews have said is extraordinary. And maybe Chadwick Boseman may also win a posthumous Oscar this year, not just because he passed away this year, but also because he's apparently fucking extraordinary in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's, it sounds like it's going to be wonderful. And then we're going to get George Clooney's Midnight Sky, I think, on Christmas Day. Yeah. So these are films that are going to factor into this conversation. There's a, there's a pretty good chance that April rolls around and 70% of the Best Picture nominees are Netflix movies, right? Do we really think uh, Midnight Sky is going to be up there? I mean, (laughs) Clooney's trajectory. Yeah, he's had a a weird decade. There was, yeah, there was, there was a time there in the 2000s where it's like everything he touched turned to gold. It's been a long time since he directed anything that I like. Your point is well taken, but we'll see. Um, And then we're going to get Soul on on uh, Christmas Day, which I think may also. Everything I've heard about that is that it's the second coming of Inside Out, so uh, it may even be better than Inside Out. So I'm encouraged by all this stuff, but. We are going to see a situation where the Oscars are going to roll around in April, March or April, whenever they're actually going to happen. And it's it's all going to be streamers, right? I mean, it may, it may be stuff that played in some theaters, but it will also be stuff that premiered on the streamers. And that is, um, that's a big deal. That's a precedent. Yes, it is. Well, Matt, it's going to be a fun six weeks when we get all these movies uh, coming up. And we did it. We're back. Matt, would you like to give our loyal, patient listeners a little call to action? Well, we'd like to thank everybody for sticking with us after this hiatus. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't figured it out yet, we like movies, but we also like podcasting and want to continue doing it. If you like what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our podcast on your preferred platform. Follow us on all the socials at WLM Podcast. Drop us a line the old-fashioned way, WLMPodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in helping us keep the lights on, visit WeLikeMovies.com and click on the donation link at the top. We appreciate that very much. This is also a site where you can find archives, listicles, rankings, video essays, and other assorted WLM ephemera. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Help us keep the conversation going. For Oscar Dahl, I'm Matt Knudsen, and the degree of difficulty on this episode was... Two bottles of whiskey. Two bottles of whiskey.